I'm Dan Rundy. I hold the Schreier Chair here at CSIS, and this is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm with my friend Lana Abu Hijle, who is the Country Director for Palestine for Global Communities. Lana is also a member of our new uh, task force on forced migration here at CSIS, and um, it's a real privilege to have Lana with us here in the studio. Lana, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Don. So, Lana, could you just tell the audience, and we get we have people listening all over the world, how did you end up becoming the country director for Global Communities? Well, all my life, I wanted to do something to help my people and to help people around the world. I actually came to study in the U.S. in the early 80s. I studied civil engineering. And the reason I studied civil engineering, because I wanted to go back to Palestine, help people in the towns and cities of the West Bank and Gaza and the refugee camps build the foundations of my country. So I ended up with the UN, lucky me, for a woman Arab from that conservative part of the world. It's not easy to work in the construction industry. Did you have pushback? Did you get pushback? Was oh, this yes. a challenging? <laughs> it was very challenging. So you end up on sites, but when you're with the UN, it's a bit different. You have some protection and you have some leverage. I spent about 17 years with UNDP, moved from just building things to recognizing only building bricks and mortars is not enough. You have to build institutions. You have to build the human capital that's going to really build the real Palestine and manage it to be the country I wanted. Then with the UN, 17 years is enough. You jump board and you want to go again and touch base with the grassroots and nothing better than working with an NGO to do that. Global communities welcomed me with open arms, gave me sort of the space to do what I wanted to do. I wanted to work on the community level. I wanted to work with people who shared the same vision and who I get inspired by. And I wanted to work with youth. So for the past 14 years, that's what I've been doing with global communities, building communities, providing economic opportunities, providing youth with hope. I hope I'm able to do that. And still, you know, at it, hoping that one day we will be able to have our sovereign state, but it would be the good governing democratic country uh, equal rights for everybody that I've always dreamt about. So, Lana, I was just, I'm just so taken by the fact that you're a very accomplished professional, but that you're a woman engineer in the mm-hmm. Middle East. Mm-hmm. Now, I have met a number of women in the Middle East who are engineers. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you're the only one. Could you no, talk a little bit? not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. So you, we have a mutual friend, and you were just telling me earlier that you were her master's thesis advisor on water engineering. Right. Did you also teach as well on the side, or were you? how did that happen? No, as a professional, I helped her. But um, 52% of Palestinian graduates of college are women. I'm not surprised. And our illiteracy rate is only 2%. This is, we are a people that believe in education, that believe this is the only thing, if you own, nobody can take it from you. So women amongst them uh, have always dreamt about having a good education in whatever field. Of course, at the beginning, engineering was hard. 
I'm a, you know, an early graduate. <laughs> <laughs> but but you you but, told uh, you, you told me Lana the other day that um, if you look at the Gulf countries, mm-hmm. you said to me that much of the Gulf, if you look at, I mean, if you, those are yeah. some spectacular cities, and it, you, many people have been to them. You and I know it's true that those have been built with with Palestinian know-how. Is that true? Very true. And I don't think I, the other day I met uh, I know a friend, a Kuwaiti princess actually, who told me we look back to the days that most of our teachers in Kuwait were Palestinians. They're the ones who actually built the greatest education system that we miss now. Because if if you recall, after the Gulf War, there was another forced migration for Palestinians. But still, till today, they remember and appreciate what Palestinian teachers did in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s in countries like Kuwait. I go to Dubai now and, and look at major engineering firms, design and construction, like Khatib and Alami, like, and around the globe, the CCC. They're owned, started, managed till today by Palestinian talent, who I used to look up to. I mean, those are the ones I looked up to. All my uncles, doctors, engineers, were in Kuwait and so on. And they were the ones who were sending remittances to keep... Uh, uh, you know, Keep the, the Palestinians afloat, afloat uh, till today. But if you look today at at, uh, at Palestinians, they're still at it, even, you know, even in, in the West Bank and Gaza. In Gaza, I go every month. And it's okay? You don't, you feel safe? <laughs> I feel very safe. People are the kindest people on earth, despite their plight. And I hope one day, you know, everybody will know Palestinians in Gaza beyond what they see on the news and beyond the political painting, the human side of it. The kids I meet there, the IT whizzes, I call them, who are now going into a new era, the coders. Really? The coders who are coding for Google. Really? It would shock you. It would surprise you. You know, I, this I, you're is gonna, our You're going to take me, aren't you? Of I'm course gonna I'm going to take I'm gonna you. I'm going to come visit and you're going to take me because I think... Um, we're, we've been talking about in this 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 task force that you're on. I'm very grateful you agreed to be a part of it. That there are some structural forces. We have more forced migrants in the world today than since ever in human history. It's having all sorts of challenging effects on the world. There's also some opportunities in it. But one of the drivers of that is a big youth bulge. And so you exactly. experience this youth bulge every day in your work. So. Can't we make this youth bulge either an opportunity or it can be a problem, right? Isn't that a fair way to describe it? This is exactly how it should be described. Uh, now my focus, actually, personally and professionally with global communities, is on youth. Because um, I'll just give you a small figure. 52% of our population are under the age of 25. Really? So you can see that. That's a massive... I mean, those are the ones who lived all their life under occupation. They don't know anything else but conflict and violence. Mm. They remain hopeful, but once they're desperate, if they lose hope and they're not provided with opportunities, that's the most dangerous thing on earth. What we need to do is to ensure they're engaged, they have access to economic opportunities, they still hold on to the day that there will be justice, and I think they will surprise us. They continue to surprise me now. 
I've started a program called the Youth Local Councils, and actually it focuses on youth, provides youth with a platform to learn and practice democracy in their communities, to understand good governance from an early age, to serve their communities in a positive way. Once they feel relevant, once they feel appreciated, once they are incorporated into the development process, their whole outlook to life changes. They become the different types of ethical leaders, even at this early stage. And this is what I'm trying to do at, with global communities, myself, with colleagues around me, team members. Just keep that hope. Keep this youth engaged, focused on the future and the possibilities of that. But this cannot continue forever. At one day, we have to, uh, to recognize conflict needs to end, and that's the day opportunities will open without limitations. I want people to always focus on that positive side. I've had youth tell me, Jack from Bethlehem once told me, what I am doing now for my, my community, exactly what you said, Don. I am part of the solution. I'm no longer considered a problem. Please stop saying we are a problem. I remember I brought him here to Washington with Mayor Baboon of Bethlehem, and we met uh, representatives on the Hill. They saw a different image of Palestinian youth than the ones you see on the TV, media, yeah. on the TV. They saw the potential, even now at this present that is very difficult and very challenging. So um, I hope I'm representing their voice whenever I can get a chance. But hopefully one day you'll host them here also. I promise to And you hear directly from them. I'm making a deal with you now. I'll do that. All right. <laughs> okay, so tell me, Lana, there was a story you told that was particularly compelling. You were working at the UN, mm-hmm. and you were early in your career, and you were talking about a person who... We were talking about the issue of refugees and also thinking, rethinking kind of the way in which we have mental pictures in our mind. We need to have a mind shift about young people yeah. around the world as an opportunity. Yes. And we need to have a mind shift about young people in Palestine or the West Bank, Gaza, wherever you want to call it, as, as a opportunity, not right. just a problem. So tell that story that you told the other day, and you know what I'm talking about. Yes, of course. Let me start first with a... A, a reminder to everyone when we talk about refugees. And that's why I wanted to share with you before that when Palestinian refugees were provided with a good education through your agency, through UNRWA and so what, on. What is UNRWA? Just so the United it. Nations Reliefs and Works Agency that was formed in 1949 after the Palestinian forced migration of historic Palestine. That's almost 69, 70 years ago. But if I would give something to UNRWA, not just providing the services, the shelter, the health, the water, you know, it was the education, focusing on the good education. I think that's what kept uh, Palestinians hopeful and the world benefited. So when I, we talked the other day about forced migration, I wanted to remind people of these two things. When we talk about refugees, we always just think of them about this poor things that live in have tents. Have no agency and, and no. helpless. These refugees have roots. They come from good families. They come from communities. They were disconnected forcefully from that. 
They have pride in their history. And that's the story I shared with you. That old man in Jabalia refugee camp in 1986. You know, I came as a pride, young, 22-year engineer, educated in the U.S., thinking I know it all. I came thinking I have the solutions. So I was like telling them what I'm going to do for them. And he said to me, we know also how to help ourselves. We come from good communities. We own things. We had families. We had social networks. Remember that. We are partners in this. I'll never forget his words. And most importantly, he said, we have pride. We were forced to be in this situation, but we have pride. This, what you are giving us, is something we hope is temporary. We're not about just taking. So I always keep that with me. It's a reminder that these are human beings just like us. It could happen to anybody. And imagine yourself when you're disconnected from your families, your roots, your human capital, your financial capital, everything. And suddenly you have to wait for people to give you. And the sense of lack of pride when that happens. Mm. So when we think of these refugees like exactly like who we are, and it could happen to anybody, then the stereotype, disappears and we think of their potential and we think of what they could be contributing and we think of their aspirations that this is not who they are. Who they are is just like anybody else. One day either they are settled or they go back to their own homes. They are members of this global development process. They're connected. They're connected. So Sometimes I just get angry when, you know, we refer in generic terms to refugees as if it's, it's a, a description of a human being. It's a status that is temporary and it should end. And when you think of that, then you see the human face behind it and how they can really be your partner in making this world a better one rather than just a receiver. So, Lana, I just... we. You know, I was struck when I first met our, our mutual friend who well, I went to a philanthropy meeting in the Middle East. I think mm. I was the only American. And I'd not spent a lot of time with uh, professionals from the Middle East. I'd spent an extended amount of time. It was, very, it was a very eye-opening experience for me. I was in my mid-30s. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the we, we have a lot of worry and focus on violent extremism in the United States. If I say to you words like violent extremism or terrorism, how should we think about terms like violent extremism and terrorism? What, what should we think about that? One of the things I, I, I loved about the round table you put together the other day is you said we need to focus on root causes, not on the symptoms. When you deal with the root causes, you always understand that people are not created and born violent or wish to die. People are forced to despair. And it, this is uh, because of the circumstances they're in. And I am always angry when this is tied actually to the refugees and, and so on. It is not. When refugees are provided an, an, an opportunity, they grab it. They hold on it. They use it to the benefit of everyone. They're not the ones who resort to violence and resort to uh, terrorism. Or, but when people are have no chances whatsoever, are deprived of everything, 
desperate, that's the most dangerous thing. When people don't care about their lives, then it's dangerous to everybody's lives. When you make people care about their lives because their lives matter, they have potential, they have an opportunity to improve it for themselves and for their families and for their children, people appreciate life and everybody else's. We could, we could apply that to the Northern anybody, Triangle of Central America. Anybody. We could apply that to uh, Western Africa and child soldiers. We could apply that to different contexts in the Middle East. We could apply that to contexts in the United States in certain yeah, parts to, of the United States. to communities States. that are yes. stricken with poverty in the United or States or of America. Rural, rural America and urban America. Sometimes I watch uh, on the news people in America angry trying to express and I go like somebody needs to open their hearts and minds and see what's going on in these communities and understand what has actually led people to so to show this anger in this violent way when you give people platforms also to express their concerns to have a voice this is what I was telling you about the youth provide them with this space to, and to be heard People don't resort to violence. So, so just on this issue of platform and voice, can I just – you're obviously, and like me, uh, very pro-democracy. Just talk about the, the yeah. concept of democracy and how does that fit into this conversation? <laughs> democracy, it's something I just wish we will have a, a, around the globe, but real democracy. Everybody is equal. And real justice. I just told you about the youth local councils, and I'll, I'll, I'll share with you a little bit of an experience. Uh, these youth are aged 15 to 24. And what we do is we get their peers or their constituency mm. to elect their representatives, mm-hmm. a real election. Even in, in, in the program I started, and with also global communities, overseen by the Central Election Commission. Mm. So it's a serious thing. It's a serious thing. It's a serious thing. And once they're elected for two years, they are in office acting as if they are the mayor of their town and so on, but really trying to understand what it means to be accountable to your constituency, what it means to be transparent, all the practices of good governance. And when I, you know, three, four months ago, I said, okay, we succeeded in creating different types of leaders that their communities respect, know that they have the experience, they've served them the right way. Our alumni, two of them, ran for the real elections at age 24. I love it. And they were elected. They toppled the mayor. (laughs) I love it. Who allowed them actually to form those councils. He came to me and he said, Lana, what have you done? What have you created? I created this space <laughs> this and monster. I allowed it. I thought it's a joke. <laughs> and now these kids kids are running for real elections and I lose. I said, because they serve their community the right way. So when people have actually really serve their community, understand their issues, they are responsive and so on. Yes, they get elected again, even if they are 24 years old. In our culture, you know, Youth voices are not so much heard. It's very patriarchal. You listen to the father and the grandfather. Now I see them working. One of them is a deputy mayor. They're more engaging. They're very participatory. They're opening the space for youth voices, for women voices. He just formed a woman advisory council in his town. Majd Shadid from Allar. 
a very Amazing. conservative town. So I think that's the real democracy we are really looking for. We want it to be not just only in Palestine, across the Arab world. Democracy, good governance, and good leadership is something we need, not arms, not conflicts. And then just imagine the economic opportunities that will open up for the jobs for the millions of youth who are unemployed now and just need to earn a living. Okay, so Lana, so there are some people in Washington and other places who say, well, the Arab world is never <laughs> going to have democracy. What's your answer to that? Of course, things will change. You talked about the youth bulge. The youth of today, if uh, things change the way we talked about, education, good governance, real democracy, are the ethical and value-based leaders of tomorrow. They are also exposed with social media. They understand how the world should function. The oppression they used to be under is no longer going to be sufficient. I think the world needs to recognize that and allow the communities and the youth of the Arab world to have a chance and stop supporting dictatorships that have been oppressing these voices for whatever interests. Because I think the interest of the world, interest of America, is in allowing that process to happen. Lana, thanks for doing this. It's great to have you. I really appreciate it. And uh, it's such a joy to spend time with you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Dad, for giving me this platform. Of course.